You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. We're going to go to the book of Genesis tonight, and uh, we're going to dig into God's Word here tonight and get back into Bible study. Thank you for being here. Amen. Uh, we, we are praying for those needs and circumstances, and we're praying, Sister, I know Sister Stacy's over here praying for her family. They're traveling tomorrow to a funeral, and to pray that God would be with them in this difficult time, her cousin, 38 years old. And uh, so keep them in prayer. And then if you'll also remember a good friend of mine, Brother Joseph Luria Evangelist, preached here several times before. Pastor's now in the Atlanta metro area. And I uh, had the privilege of baptizing him some, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. But uh, his mother passed away unexpectedly. And the funeral is going to be uh, Friday as well. So pray for these families as well. And uh, uh, life sometimes is just difficult. And uh, you cannot make sense of it, and you don't have answers. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. But God is faithful, and we thank the Lord for His faithfulness. We thank Him for everything that He does. And it's to His Word that we turn tonight because His Word is faithful, and it's absolute. And so we are uh, in a little series here tonight, uh, origin series, we're calling it, and... um, In Genesis chapter number seven, we're going to pick up where we left off. Now, we've been skipping our way through here, and uh, sometimes we we skip uh, uh, weeks, and I think it's been a couple weeks, and so we're trying to work our way through this, and sometimes I pray and I say, Lord, why did you ever give me this idea? Because tonight we're on part 19, and we're only halfway through the series. And uh, then I think maybe I should just run through it and finish it up, just try to wrap it up real quick. Uh, but I, I have a conviction that God's word is true, it's absolute, and that it's important that we understand it. And so I do pray that our methodical walking through scripture, if nothing else, I, I, I don't have all the answers. I think that's probably evident and clear by now to you. But if nothing else, we understand that God's word, while it doesn't tell us everything there is to know, it tells us everything we need to know. And so there's some things that are very important. And the thing we're going to look at tonight is the flood, the flood account. So by the help of the Holy Ghost, by the help of the Lord, and by the help of the clock, if somebody would just suspend it for a few minutes, we're going to try to get through uh, almost two chapters tonight. I would like to cover from chapter 7, verse 11, all the way through chapter 8, verse number 19. So do you, are you ready? Yeah, you're ready? Oh, yeah, okay, all right. Here's my, our wonderful reader who I picked on Sunday. Did anybody catch that Sunday? I got to pick on him a little bit. And uh, yeah, my wife said I was unfair to him. So uh, uh, I've done the same thing though. So I've done this. I, I, in fact, I did that this week. My wife sent me a text and I didn't get it until later on. And yeah, so I was guilty too of the very same thing that I was blaming you for. By the way, I did, uh, I was uh, on the phone with a couple of our missionaries today, one in Israel, one uh, in Nepal, both of them 
on access challenge areas. In the month of February, you guys blessed uh, four of our missionaries and the ministries there by giving to missions. Thank you for your giving to missions. For our Nepal missionary, I think, I can't remember how much we we sent to them. It was over $5,000. They needed $10,000 for that specific trip. And because of the um, stewardship that they were able to do on that trip, they were able to give, and they reported of the total 10000 that they raised, of which CTK gave five over five, um, $4,600 they were able to give to the ministries in Nepal, the uh, pastors there. And these are, this is a young work. Um, so this work in Nepal is only about 20 years old, and I think right now we have about 16 churches. And so after this trip, we're working towards, they're working towards training, further training, and licensing of these ministers over there. One lady uh, has a church, and her church is so full, she can't even fit everybody that goes to her church into it. And, and uh, we were able to be a great blessing to them financially. And of course, I shared a little bit of the story with you that night. On our business meeting night, we had a Zoom, uh, recorded Zoom call. Uh, the, the man that God called to go do the work there is actually a pastor in what we would call rural Minnesota. And so God has a sense of humor how he, he, he calls people from around the world. But the church there not only gave, but they gave their pastor. I mean, not every church would just say, okay, we're going to commit to giving our pastor away a month at a time to go around somewhere on the other side of the world. And uh, they did. And so I asked him, I said, well, how's the church doing in the midst of that? He said, God is blessing in so many ways you would not even believe. How many know you cannot outgive the Lord? Amen. God is blessing. So I pray, I pray for them. Pray for the church there in Harris, Minnesota. Pray for the work there continued. And thank you for your continued faithfulness and giving. So in that. All right, let's go to Genesis chapter number 7. And we are going to go. Uh, I, I gave some stuff to the media team. If you guys have any uh, issues tonight, uh, just let me know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow ahead here, and you can sort of follow along. So Genesis chapter number 7, and let's look at verse number 11. We're going to walk through this together, and most of you would be familiar with this, but I do want to take the time to go through here, and I'm going to have you highlight some things. So if you'll go ahead, let's read. In the 600th year of Noah's life, yes. in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the deep, great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Okay, so I want us to note here, if you were going to underline something, all the fountains of the great deep broken up. Now, that, that's key to the phrase, uh, the key to, I think, understanding the flood. That's the first thing, and it follows the windows of heaven were opened. So how many of the fountains? All of the fountains. So that's that's a critical thing. Go on reading verse 12. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now this is the very first mention that we have of rain in Scripture. The very first mention that we have of rain here in Scripture. Because from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, it tells us in the creation account, the creation account at the beginning... It says, for it had not rained upon the earth yet. It tells us. So here, it's telling us that in Genesis 2, it hadn't rained yet. And now in Genesis chapter 7, this is the first mention of rain that we see. So we can presume that this is the first time that this is happening. But this is more than just 
what we had today. Today was, what would they call it, a goalie washer? Isn't that what they call it? I don't know, you can come up with a different phrase. Brother Bollinger, you've always got another phrase for something there. You don't have a good one for that. So that, today was a goalie washer. There's a lot of rain. It's still raining. We may not make it home tonight. It's, I mean, who knows? But this is more than just a simple rainstorm like that. There's something unique, something that's never happened before. And that's what the text is implying. That's what it is clearly letting us know. All the fountains of the great deep were opened up. So there's the subterranean waters that exist on the earth and a flood. Let's go on and read verse 13. In the selfsame day yes. entered Noah yes. and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. Okay, so, so last week or last lesson we talked about the two main points were the first two phases of, of, of chapter 6 were uh, or through, through the first part of chapter 7 was building the ark, which covered a long period, and then finally entering the ark. There came that point where now we've got to enter into the ark. And so we're seeing that here in seven days. They gathered into the arks for seven days. They were gathering into the ark. And then on that seventh day, the waters come. And this is what it's talking about. Go on and read. They and every beast after his kind. Yes. And all the cattle after their kind. Yes. And every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. Right. And every fowl after his kind, mm -hmm. every bird of every sort. Mm -hmm. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. So wherein is the breath of life is a key phrase. That's everything that breathed, everything that breathed, everything that could not survived the submerging of water in that context. Go on and read. And they that went in, yes. went in male and female of all flesh. Okay, so that should be self-explanatory for the propagation. In doing this, in bringing judgment, God spends, as the judgment is coming, which has already been pronounced, it's coming in, in Genesis chapter 6, God spends so much time on making sure that there is a way of salvation and making sure that people are going to be saved. So I think we can get lost in focusing on the judgment of God and forget that God spent a lot of time giving people a chance to be saved. Not only did he give Noah 100 years to live, uh, or not to live, 100 years to build the ark, but he gave Noah 100 years to preach the message that the ark is the place of salvation. And so God spends a lot of time. But now, of course, he calls them in. All of the animals come in, and it's this is no accident. They went in male and female. Okay, so all, all this political garbage that says that male and female doesn't matter. Well, when you're actually trying to repopulate the world, it actually does sort of... A, Major detail in the story. Like you got to get that one right. Went in male and female of all flesh. As God had commanded him. Yes. And the Lord shut him in. So, man, there's so much here. As God commanded, it's going to happen. This was something. And the Lord shut him in. Now, this is pivotal to think. This is not just Noah's doing. Everything Noah is doing, we talked about this last week was his obedience to God, or the last lesson, his obedience to God. And when he's in, 
the Bible clearly says that the Lord shut him in, that God himself closes the door, that it's God that closes the door. Now, there's a lot of ways we could go on this, but we'll hasten through. Noah didn't close the door. Noah was not the one who determined when the entrance to the ark was no longer available. Noah closed the door. That being said, we are not in the business of closing the door. We're in the business of preaching the gospel of salvation and getting ourselves and our family on the ark. Amen. 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 And the Lord shut him in. So that's, that's very, very emphatic there. Okay, read. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, mm-hmm. and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. Yes. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Okay, so let's pause and just slow down a little bit here. For 40 days, it took 40 days for the waters to come, 40 days of nonstop. Now, we're not just talking about rain from heaven. So this is not like something that we've ever seen before or ever seen since, ever experienced. We're talking about the, all the fountains of the deep opened up, broken up, come forth, whatever that means, whatever that implies, it's, it's massive, it's catastrophic. Um, is, is coming up. But even with that massive force and amount of water, it takes 40 days before the ark is then lifted up. And then when it's lifted up in verse 19, read this, verse 19 again. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. Okay, this is trying to imply to exceedingly upon the earth, the waters prevailed, yes. And all the high hills yes. that were under the whole heaven were yes. covered. We're covered. So here it says all the high hills. So if I was going to underline anything, I would underline all the high hills that were under. I would underline not only all the high hills, but under the whole heaven. The whole heaven were covered. If you have a question about how much uh, the water covered in the earth, 19 is pretty emphatic here on how much it is. All the high hills were under the whole heaven were covered. Go on and read. 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail. Okay, so that's about 22 and a half feet, just based on our our modern calculations for our perspective. 22 and a half feet. Brother Kendall, how far is it from about here to the point? You don't know? Okay. I thought you used to know. How... Side wall is 19. Over there to the side, it's 19. So we've had the scaffold in here, and Brother Kendall's been on top of that, so that's what I was trying to think mathematically, how that, how that stacked up. But All right, it's been a while, I guess, since he's been on the scaffold here. We're glad to have Brother Kendall home. So 22 and a half feet upward, read. read. And the mountains were covered. Okay, so now when you read this, 15... 22 and a half feet, let's say waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Now, what it's not saying is not saying that 22 and a half feet covered the mountains. That's actually implying is that above the mountains, there was 22 and a half feet is the way most people interpret that 22 and a half feet above the mountains, meaning that the boat, when it moved around, was able to clear. It was able to float, as it said in verse 17, 
and it, and it was lift up above the earth. So it's above the earth. And then in verse 18, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. Now, the ark doesn't have any motor in it. It doesn't have any steering mechanisms that we know of. It doesn't seem to imply that. It's just literally a capsule, a place meant to hold them up. That's what it's for. They're not navigating. There's nowhere to go when they get up there, <laughs> but, but hopefully come back down. And that's what had, had happened there. So it's floating up above there. How far it floats in the 378 days, I'm not really sure. I'm not too positive. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It just tells us everything that we need to know. So read in verse 21. And all flesh died. How much? All flesh. All. So I'd underline that. That's, that's an important point of the context here, the saying. And all flesh died. That moved upon the earth. Yes. Both of fowl and of cattle mm -hmm. and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. And every man. So the implication here, obviously not every man, because there's eight people in the ark, as we're, we're going to know. But every man that was left upon the earth. Read in verse 22. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Yes. Of all that was in the dry land died. Mm -hmm. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground. All the bugs. Unfortunately, a couple of them made it on the ark <laughs> and lived to tell the story. All right. Both man and cattle. Yes. And the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. Yes. And they were destroyed from the earth. Yes. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. They that were with him in the ark. Now, some speculate that there was more than just the eight people. Uh, that was in the ark, but the text does not uh, really, I, I don't think it gives too much room for that. And we're going to confirm that later on when we look at the New Testament witness as well. Go on and read in verse 24. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in yes. 150 days. So for 150 days. So 40 days it takes for the waters to come. And then 150 days, the waters prevail on the earth before there begins to be a change. So a long time, significant enough that the fowl of the air can't continue flying around and they collapse. They die as well in the sea. They're not sustained uh, either. Everything that's not on the boat does not survive. Let's go on to verse chapter number eight. And God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah, yes. And every living thing. By the way, when that says that, God did not forget Noah and then remember him. Right. In the sense that you and I forget and remember. Does anybody ever forget anything? Oh, yeah. All the time. More and more, it seems like. And then you remember, oh yeah, this is not talking about that in the aha moment that God had. The old English there, it had, it had a bigger, bigger context. So God remembers, God knows, he knows, he knew. The 150 days, God knew where Noah was. God knew what he was going to do. He never forgot Noah. So don't allow yourself to think, well, God's forgotten me. God knows where you're at. Amen. Amen. You may be in day 141, <laughs> right? In the boat on top of the waters, wondering what in the world is happening. Where are you? David would write prophetically, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt 
that. He felt that. But later on, he'd pick up the pen just to make sure there was no misunderstanding and say, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. So in one moment, he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But later on, he said, no, he never forsook me. There were times where I felt like, or I couldn't feel. Times where I can't feel. And did Noah sin? Was Noah doing something? No, he was obeying God. He was in the plan of God. You can be obedient to God, faithful to God, walking with God. Sometimes the Bible tells us that life's experiences are going to take you through seasons. But God is faithful. Why is Genesis important? Because you got to read the rest of the story to know. And God remembered Noah. Never forgot him. God knows right where you're at. Go on. And every living thing. Yes. And all the cattle that was with him in the ark. Mm -hmm. And God made a wind to pass over the earth Mm -hmm. and the waters assuaged. Yes. And the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. So here, 150 days of water. Water, 150 days. It took 40 days for the boat to float, to be lifted up off where it was. And then yet, you've got 110 more days of a constant barrage, whatever that, however that means. However, this is a, that many days of water, no place could survive. No place could survive. And imagine... We can't even really comprehend and we can't even really know how massive that must have re-scripted the terrain of the world. How much it would have changed. Go on and read. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. Okay, so there's this continual running off. Now, that's interesting. You put all this, read on a little bit. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. All right. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Okay, so now we understand that whoever Moses is, the audience is here at the time as he's putting this together, uh, uh, that they were familiar with Ararat in that and their context, and he was identifying the place where it landed, where it rested. So the, water, the rain comes, and then continually it runs off. So how, what are all the logistics that happen in that place? How, if there was subterranean water, first of all, underneath the crust of the earth, and then the fountains of the deep are broken up, and that water comes up on top of the crust of the earth, then that water goes off of the crust of the earth. It, it seems like there's a resettling here. There's a new settling in the, in the new ocean beds. Of this time. So the oceans that we know today probably would not have been the oceans that would have been before. We don't know. That world passed away as scripture later on testifies again of. Think of the catastrophic change, what's taking place here. This is probably not fathomable for our modern present day mind. It's we we've never walked through this experience. There's no way that we can know what this was like. But yet, this is what the Bible is testifying of and what it's telling us here. Let's read on here. And the waters decreased continually yes. until the 10th month. It's a long time, okay. In the 10th month, on yes. the first day of the month, 
were the tops of the mountains seen. Okay, so it takes a long time. Now they're seen. Okay, keep going. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days. Yes. That Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Yes. And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. All right. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. Yes. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. Mm -hmm. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. Yes. Read two, two, three more verses. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in unto him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. Yes. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth, and he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. Right. So here we are in 12 verses. Now notice that God spends longer telling the story of coming out of the flood than he does actually speaking of the destruction and the flood. I think that that in itself tells something. God is spending more time talking about Noah's process of coming out of this storm and this situation than he does the actual destruction that's happening. When the destruction happens, well, it's 150 days. But now he gives time, talking about coming out in the process. The waters come. Now he sees the tops of the mountains. Now he sends out a raven, and it goes back and forth. Now he sends a dove, and there's a significance between the raven and the dove because the dove would find a nesting place and a landing place, and it comes back, and he knows he's got to wait. And he waits longer, and then the dove goes out, and it comes, got the olive branch, and he sends it out, and, and he stays yet until the dove does not return again any more unto him. And so God's sharing us and showing us this process of, of, of the transition here that's taking place. Read in verse 13 now. And it came to pass in yes. the 600th and first year, mm -hmm. in the first month, the first day of the month, yes. the waters were dried up from off the earth. Okay. And Noah removed the covering of the ark All right. and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. All right. And in the second month, on the seven and 20th day of the month, was the earth dry. Okay, so there's a summary right there. So 378 days, they are in the ark. If you add it all up, that's a long time to be in the same room together. How long was our, our shutdown and our pandemic? We were crying and we were upset 13 weeks. 378 days. And this is catastrophic. So there's some truths that I want to take real quick that we'll pull out of here. Some truths. Let's, let's throw up the first slide here. Some truths from the flood that we learn. Some truths from the flood. Three things that I want to share with you real quick. The first truth is God's disposition against sin is absolute. God's disposition against sin is absolute. This was how it grieved the Lord. He, re, it, he wanted to repent for making man. It grieved him. And we've already covered all of that stuff. God's disposition against sin is absolute, intolerable. There was a wickedness that 
that peaked in this earth so much that God says, we're resetting it. We're starting over. We're wiping everything out. And whatever that sin entails, he didn't just come to wipe out humanity. He was content to wipe out all creatures. And so he wipes them out. His disposition against sin is absolute. God does not change in his Look, his outlook towards sin. The things God hated then, he still hates now. The things that grieved God then still grieve him now. And, and it is no, uh, I think we have to be careful not to just skip over real quick and say, well, the world was bad in sin. Specifically, gross immorality. And with that immorality, sexual immorality. There was all kinds of devious lust and sexual immorality that was taking place then. That is the same, right? When God comes against Sodom and Gomorrah, what was it? It was a gross sexual immorality. Everywhere that God sends his judgment, the same is going to happen, come to the ends of the earth. What do we see in the world today? What do we see the increase of today? Amen? Gross immorality. You say, well, you say, well, you know, it's not as pervasive. Well, it's very pervasive. Do you know the amount? I I don't even know the latest stats. All the stats I have are probably 10 years old now. For the amount of pornographic material that is consumed in the United States of America, we're fooling ourselves if we think we're a Christian nation. I know we were founded on certain Christian principles and we have all that stuff, but we are not Christian in practice when you look at where the dollars are going. We are gross immorality, gross immorality in the world. And so God's disposition against sin is absolute. He is God and he does not change. That's why, folks, we, we, I, I preached a little bit about, about purity and having a right to purify your home. And I feel strong conviction about this. In this day and age, you as a parent, parents, be bold, be strong. If your children have social media accounts, you should have access to all those social media accounts. Because there's all kinds of gross immorality that's taking place. Predators hang out on all these things. And the people that are screaming this the loudest, to watch out for all that stuff, are not the Christians. Is the people that work in the industry. Most of them are agnostic. And they're, they're so apprised to what's going on that they're stepping back and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. One, one, a, a book I highly recommend for every parent, 10 Reasons Why You Should Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Written by Jaron Lanier. He's one of the foremost intellectual forward thinkers in our pop culture. He's extremely weird. Agnostic to the T. And yet he worked in he works in this industry. And he actually backtracks it and says, okay, now I use it. He said, but what I'm telling you is if you don't know how to use it right, it's going to dominate you and control you. And it's so dangerous. And he gives us 10 reasons why we should delete it right now. <laughs> this guy isn't even a preacher. I could probably give you 20 reasons why you need to delete your social media account. <laughs> But, 
But, you know, this is just a device. It's a device and whatever. The problem is not the technology. The problem is man's heart's evil. And here's the issue. This is what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is unique in this, that the Bible does not say that you can think yourself to a better way, that you can discipline yourself to a better way, or exercise yourself to a better way. What the Bible tells us is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What the Bible says is you can't do it better. You need a Savior. You need help. So as preachers of the gospel, what do we have? We have the unfortunate task of telling people that they're sinners and they need help. It's hard to say they're very sorry. We're all sorry. People are pitiful and we're all people, as Brother Mullins used to say. That's a great line. People are pitiful and we're all people. Amen. We could use a baptism of humility in this day. Amen. So here we are. And the second thing, God's judgments are just. God's judgments are just. What am I saying? Well, notice he gave a lot of time before he destroys the world. 100 years, a preacher, a witness. Nobody's had a better sermon illustration than Noah. It took up his whole front yard. God's judgments are just. No one who would die would have repented if they had been given more time. Think about that. No one who died would have repented if they were given more time. They were given a preacher in 100 years. It's the same story that Jesus told when he tells of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies, the beggar who's there. And, and the rich man goes to Lazarus, or goes to Abraham, and says, send Lazarus back to preach to my family. Which is interesting, because it's so, so, that's so complex and so deep. Lazarus knew his own guilt. He did not dare ask to escape the judgment that he was already enduring. Wow. The revelation of truth, the awareness, the consciousness of guilt in eternity was so overwhelming, Lazarus, or, or the rich man rather, never asked to be spared from what was being given to him, which means he knew he deserved it. But he asked for Abraham to send Lazarus back to his family because Lazarus wasn't in a place of torment. Send Lazarus to preach. Abraham said no. They have, they have the prophets. They have everything that's already there. And, and if one comes back from the dead, if they're not going to hear them, they're not going to hear one that comes back from the dead. I'm going to tell you, God's judgments are just. Because he gives an opportunity for repentance. Everywhere through the narrative, we've looked at, even with Cain and Abel, God gave opportunity for repentance, and Cain would not. Never would turn back to God. So God's judgments are just. And then the third truth that we're pulling out of here, being saved from judgment, is to witness judgments. Noah and his family were saved from the judgment, but they had the reality of witnessing the judgment that God would send. Of course, you've heard the stories and you've heard, you've heard the, the narratives. I don't know how, how much that was true, but 
that they hear the cries, cries and the screams of people as they're in the ark while the rains are floods are coming. I don't know. The flood would have been so massive. It would have been so incredible whether or not they would have heard, but they had the knowledge of knowing. The moment they stepped into the ark was a moment of separation. And the moment they stepped inside of the covering, they were leaving, they were leaving family, friends, acquaintances outside of the covering. And this is a reality that we learn in the church Yes, I want everyone to be saved, but I'm not going to let anyone keep me out of the covering that God has given. And the moment I step into the covering, unfortunately, people that we love, that means they are left outside of the covering. And the hardest thing probably is to watch people not accept what God has for them. Jesus on the cross, we pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. He's he, he, he knows how they're acting, but he's interceding on their behalf. And so there would Stephen, as he would be stoned, he would be stoned looking up to God. Could you imagine? Stephen gives this elaborate sermon, and yet in their anger, so eaten up with their own selfishness and prides and bitterness, they would stone Stephen to death, all the while knowing he knows they're hurting him, they're killing him, they're brutally murdering him, and yet he knows he's leaving them outside. And I'm going to tell you, we, but God's salvation and God's grace is great. Yeah. And we thank God for that. So the reality is, is that we have to make a choice. And that is a very, very hard choice to make. For me to stand before God, there will be no excuse that's good enough. I will stand before God uh, on my own. I will not stand as Janelle's husband. I will be accountable how I treated her, how I was as a husband. I will not stand as Lucas' father. I will be accountable for how I was as a father. I will stand, I will stand by myself. I, I, I won't even stand uh, 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 if, if this church, God blesses and continues to go, grow, and continues revival. I, I, I don't get credit. I stand and I have to give an account for myself who I am. I, I cannot ride the wave of spiritual success of a, of a corporate body of believers. Now, I will have to give an account for how I am. You will have to give an account for yourself by yourself. That principle is put in Scripture. Two will be in the field. Right? One will be taken. The other left. Two will be in the bed. This This is a harsh reality. One will be taken and the other left. This is close companionship. I pray you're not climbing into any beds with anybody you don't know. I don't think that's the one that he was talking about is going to be taken. Two will be in the bed. There's a close companionship here. One will be taken and one will be left. We will have to give an account before God. Is this all right tonight? But, but, But this is the word of God. And we come back and we have to make that decision and we have to enter into the boat and then we let God close the door. We don't close anybody else out. We let God shut the door. And we pray because you never know who may walk in. Amen? Amen. People are not your enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities. And, you know. All right, so let's go on. Let's hasten on. Next. Let, uh, 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 and by the way, the church, one day, the Bible lets us know the church will sit in judgment of the whole world. The world will be judged. 
because of the church, because of the redeemed, because we made it through, they will not have an excuse. We will, we will sit in judgment as a witness against the world, against those that do not accept the grace and the mercy of God. You are a witness against me if I walk out on the Lord. Because I can't come and say, I can't come and bring my excuse. Amen? Amen? And so this is the church. Okay, let's hasten on. We got to hurry here. Questions? Questions I have. Now, some people say that the flood wasn't, wasn't global. It was just local. And some say that it was global. So I've got seven questions here that I'm going to give you. I'm taking this from Norman Giesler, Systematic Theology, Volume 2, page, I don't know, 472. You can, you can read this, but there's other things here. But he sort of summarizes some of my other points, so I just use his questions and collapse all my main points into this. Now, there, there is a point here, and let's just pause. There is a point here where some people say, well, the whole world, the flood didn't have to cover the whole world. And the reason why people have a hard time with that is because it was a lot of water to get the boat 22 and a half feet above the top of the mountain peaks. That takes a whole lot of water. Don't ask me how that happened. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It just tells us what we need to know. There was a lot of water. And so they say for all the people to die, all the creatures, well, geographically, maybe they hadn't traveled out through the whole world because they seem to be hanging out and staying together. Even after the flood, they're hanging out and staying together. And the Tower of Babel, and God has to confound the languages so that they will actually disperse and go out. And so maybe they were all there. So maybe the regional flood was just a large area flood and it didn't need to drown everything. And so it just was that part. Well, that's true. I'm, you know, if God didn't want to cover Mount Everest, nobody can live on Mount Everest anyways. So I guess he didn't have to do that. So in theory, I guess I could say, okay, I can acknowledge that. But I do think there's some problems a little bit with that. So, and we don't need to argue too much over the details trying to figure it all out. The point is, everyone died. God hates sin. Everyone died. God started over, and God gave a plan, and we have to obey him, okay, to go forward. So if you disagree with me on some things, that's okay, but don't disagree with what the Word of God is trying to say here. That's the most important thing. Okay, so number one, if the flood was just local, well, I got a bonus question. If a flood was just local, why didn't, why didn't God tell Noah to move instead of build an ark? Why didn't he just tell him to rent a U-Haul? That would have been a whole lot easier. <clears throat> Going to flood, go a long, long way. I mean, how far can you travel in 100 years? As a bonus question. Number one, why were two plus of each kind taken into the ark? If he's not going to destroy all the earth, why the animals could have migrated to the long place in 100 years? Number two, why is the language of Genesis 7, 19 through 23 so universal? Let's go back. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And how many? All the high hills that were under the part of heaven. <laughs> the whole heaven were covered. That's a lot of heaven. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved upon the earth. I think we shouldn't miss that point. That's the main thing here. Every, he's emphatic, all flesh. In verse 22, in whose nostril was the breath of a life, they died. Verse 23, he repeats it again third time. Every living substance. And then he double repeats it there. Noah, 
only, and those that were with him in the ark remained alive. So that's pretty emphatic. That's pretty universal here. Okay, number three, why are flood deposits universal? Well, there's flood deposits all over the world. How do we get marine animals? Um, and, and by the way, most, uh, uh, most Christian creationist global earth are, are flood geologists. These are, not, these are not just creatures that pretend to know about science. There are, there's a whole large movement of actual flood geologists that are very schooled, very gifted, and they look at the evidence without the presumptions of, uh, let's say, evolution or an agnostic approach to the sciences. And when they do that, they argue that actually the evidence is only explained by a catastrophic biblical account of the flood. So one of those examples you can go to, I love the Grand Canyon, been there a few times, love, love the North Rim, the South Rim. I haven't done the through hike yet. I want to do that. But um, the North Rim is 8,000, some 8,000 feet up, and it's a more beautiful approach. The South Rim is only 7,000 feet high. It's a more beautiful scene because it's lower, so you get a larger panoramic, so it photographs better, and the sun's behind you. So that's why the South Rim is so popular, and it's absolutely incredible. The Grand Canyon enters or the Colorado River enters the Grand Canyon in the north and exits in the south. But the north is higher, but yet they tell us that the Colorado River, for millions and millions of years, eroded away the Grand Canyon, and yet the north, where it enters and flows, is higher than the south. So you know water had to flow for millions of years uphill, really high, before it started eroded it down towards the south. So it doesn't even make practical sense in that unless you put some kind of models and big things, but in actuality, what the Grand Canyon mirrors and mimics is places where we've observed massive flood and erosion that took place over a rapid amount of time, and it creates these canyons. You can go through Bryce Canyon, gorgeous canyon to hike, beautiful canyon in Utah. You can go to Georgia, and in the southwestern part, almost on the western side of Georgia, because of bad farming irrigation without using adequate water runoff, there is a canyon. Have you, been, have you been to the canyon in Georgia? You guys lived in Georgia. You know about this canyon? Most people don't even know about it. And they're, they're going in and they're replanting trees and stuff to try to cover it up. But you can actually go there, drive there, and walk through. And the canyon's only like, uh, it's less than 100 years old. And it looks like Bryce Canyon, just like it. But we know because we've observed that a lot of water over a little amount of time has eroded this all out. Yet it's not hard and impacted and all that stuff now. So it's continuing to erode and they plant stuff in there to try to cover it all, stop the erosion and all that kind of stuff. So in one place, we'll look at it and we'll see all the erosion. We'll say, oh, this happened real quick. And then over in another place, we'll say, well, it took billions and billions of years and all that stuff. And the flood geologists actually say, no, the reason why there's marine life that is up in the tops of the mountains is because of what the biblical model says, a subterranean water comes off. There was massive runoff and erosion, and then the geological layers that we see are massive amounts of sediment that's in there. And at the Mount, Mount St. Helen, where, where the explosion there and the bottom of that, those lakes and craters, they found stuff that matched that carbon dates and geological column dating would match some places where they would say it was millions of years in the layers, but yet we know that it's been observed because modern man has documented history of how short and shallow it is. And those logs that are already petrified, 
We find the petrified rock and they say there's millions of years old, but yet they found, they found uh, uh, just since America's been around, they've, they've found human, human legs in cowboy boots that have been petrified, that they pulled them out. How do you explain that in the last little bit? So there's a lot of arguments, a lot of things that you can look on uh, online. One of the places I would send you to, Answers in Genesis has some of it. You know some of the other ones, but is isgenesishistory.com. I think it is .com or .org has an incredible thing, and I was going to share a video with you, but I'm running out of time tonight. The next question, number four, why are flood stories universal? Every major continent in the world has an ancient civilization that has some interesting flood story, even in China, even in Polynesia, Hawaii, and other parts of the world have these ancient mythological flood stories. Most of them that we pay attention to, though, are in Mesopotamia because that's, that was the land of, of the biblical uh, narrative. And so those ones, interestingly, match. There's the Babylonian account that they discovered in the amassing that the Assyrians did. The Assyrians had one of the greatest libraries in the history of humanity. and They set about back then to bring every knowledge from every culture into one place. And so we still have not exhausted all of the stuff that the Assyrians amassed. We still haven't read through it all. That's how much stuff it was. And they've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the Babylonian account in the 7th century, the, the uh, uh, Gilgamesh, I think, was one of the accounts of the story. The Akkadian account in 1600 B.C. And then the Sumerans, they say somewhere around the 19th to 18th century B.C., the Sumerans would have been the first earlier, that's where you're going to Nimrod, Tower of Babel, those kind of people. They had an ancient flood account as well. And a lot of them, though, though were altered with many, many uh, different deities. And the unique thing about the Bible account is that it was the account uh, of a monotheistic God. That's the one thing that was unique. And, and the text there. So it seems like there's these stories all around the world. And people say, aha, there it is. Moses was just copying everybody else in the world. Well, actually, I think God is the author and the creator, and Satan is the copycat. Yes. But you go ahead and choose which side you want to stand on. Number five, why does Peter say the whole earth was underwater if the whole earth was not underwater? Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 5, for this they willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, this is a predated world, the uh, 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 what, antediluvian period, being overflowed with water perished. So that entire world perished, changed. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So God said he never again destroy the earth with a flood, and we'll look at that when we come next week, or next week, yeah, Lord willing, to the Noahic covenant. But the world is going to be destroyed again, this time by fire. And this is what Peter is testifying to. So why does Peter say the whole earth was underwater? In verse 6, or question six, why does the Bible say only eight people were saved? Second Peter chapter two and verse five, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it says that he saved Noah, the eighth person. 
So there, just like the Genesis text says, all flesh perished except for Noah and those that were with him. Number seven, the last question, then why were all the mountains covered? Genesis 7 and 19 says that they were all covered. In fact, it gives us, ironically, it says that 22 and a half feet, they were above there. So um, that's, that's pretty emphatic. Now, somebody says, well, there's no way that the water could be 22 and a half feet above Mount Everest, seeing how high Mount Everest was. There's, there's not enough water to take that. Well, that's only assuming that Mount Everest was as high as Mount Everest was when the flood came. What we're talking about is something so catastrophic that the entire face of the world would have been different. We don't even know what the world looked like before. And so there's, there's some incredible movements that go on when the fountains of the deep open up. By the way, if you look at it on your globe or on your map, every mountain range in the world, and you can go do this, every mountain range in the world follows a, the same perimeter line of the coast, the water coast, ocean coast, to the east and to the west. And so that's an interesting thing. How do the mountain ranges follow exactly where, but if the crust of the earth is separating and the fountains are opening and they're coming back up and they're coming and they're, they're crinkling together, they're, they're mounding up, whatever, who knows what the world looked like before the flood and what happened after the flood. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. The important point that we need to make, and I'm not going to show that video. Did you guys get that video ready? You've got it ready. I'm not going to show that video. Can we share that video maybe in the private Facebook group? Or we can show it later. Amen. Because we're running out of time. Stand together with me tonight. The point is, is that in order to be saved, we must obey God's word. And as we come through the narrative, and if, if you missed some of the nuances of the series, because we've covered a lot of things that set up the context of where we're at here. But I thank God. He, he, he says then, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of man. And so he talks about how that the ark saved them, water saved them, whereby water saved them. So we now are saved by baptism. Amen. Baptism doth now save us. Amen. The point is, is that God's disposition against sin is absolute. God's judgments are just. And you cannot talk about the judgment of God without talking about the mercy and the grace of God. Because God said, I will destroy the earth. And then he waited over a hundred years. He gave a space. He gave a time. I'm going to tell you, God will never show up and pronounce judgment in your life. And then all of a sudden it's done. God will give a space for repentance. Else, why does he need to pronounce the judgment? Just judge. But if he pronounces the judgment, when he speaks a word into your life, when conviction comes into your life, the reason why God's letting that conviction come is not so that condemnation would come, but so that repentance could be brought out of a heart. Say, God, help me. God, change me. And it's with that knowledge that the Bible says the Lord loveth, chasteneth those whom he loves. He chastens those whom he loves because he wants us to change. How many has ever been convicted by the Lord? You've been chastened by the Holy Ghost. 
God ever prompted you, hey, you got to change your spirit. You got to change your attitude. You got you to you get some things, you, some crooked things in your life have to be straightened out. God's doing that because he desires to bring us into alignment with him. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the faithfulness of your word. And I pray, God, that it would not just be a storybook, an old book that we wouldn't pay attention to, but God, I pray that it would be something that would get into our hearts and our minds, that it would change how we talk and how we live and how we walk, how we operate. God, that it would even change how we think, Lord, that we would put you first, that you would be Lord of our life. God, that we would be compelled to obedience, Lord, to put our trust and faith in you, knowing that you have all of the answers. We may not know all the answers, but God, you are the way. You are the truth and you are the life. God, I pray tonight for every person here, every, every need and every circumstance that we would be submitted to you. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray you'd have the preeminence in all things. And everybody said in Jesus' name.